Reading from Titus 3, chapter 1 through 7. Be ready for every good work. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, as we have heard your voice speaking to us in the scriptures, would your spirit give us hearts that humbly receive what you would have to say to us today? Amen. Well, we, we live in a me-first world. A me-first world when it comes to governments, when it comes to businesses, when it comes to individuals. We want what we want. And that's because we all have me-first hearts. Each one of us. We want what we think is good for us, good for perhaps our people, our house, whether or not that is a good for others, whether or not God calls that thing a good. This me-first disposition is the pull of pride. That's a name that you could give for it. Pride is the desire to put ourselves first. Uh, our needs, our wants, our desires, our flourishing, to, to place these things at the very center of our lives and attention and affections, to live without ultimate reference to God or to others. Pride pulls us inwards to ourselves. It causes us to love and to serve ourselves before we serve others and love others. And this, this is a universal pull. It's present in our world. It doesn't take much effort to see it in our world or in our own hearts, but it was just as strongly present in the ancient world of Crete. And this is why Paul is writing uh, in chapter 3. He wants Titus to know that even though this church in Crete has been saved, it's being sanctified uh, through Christ's giving himself for them, pride will continue to pull at their hearts. This is inescapable. Their church is still filled with people who have me-first hearts, living in a me-first world, and so they will need help. They'll need assistance. And thankfully, there is help. The good news of Jesus, which has come for people, people with me-first hearts, it creates a humble community. This is what the good news of Jesus does. Where pride pulls us inwards, the good news of Jesus creates humility that pushes us outward, that causes us to love and to serve others. The good news of Jesus comes to proud people. There's really no other people that the good news of Jesus can come to. But when this good news is joined with faith and repentance by the Spirit's work, this good news is powerful enough to create humble people from proud people. And so today, this is what we're going to be doing as we're going through our text kind of top to bottom, is we're going to be looking at four markers of, of a humble community, four markers of, of a church that's being changed by this good news Four ways that God is making proud, me-first hearts humble through this gospel, both in Crete and here in Halifax. 
So this is, this is the first point. A humble community is marked first by humble actions. It's marked by humble actions. Starting in verse 1, if you look at the text, uh, Paul tells Titus to remind the churches in Crete uh, of, of actions that are befitting a humble community that's been changed by the gospel. Reminding them of, of particular behaviors that, that, that work with humility. Again, pride looks inward. Humility looks outwards. And that means, that means something concrete for the church's social interactions, the way they relate to people outside of themselves. It changes the way we act towards public authorities. It changes the way we act towards our neighbors and our coworkers. If you look at verse 1, he begins by saying, remind them that they are to be submissive to local authorities, local rulers, to be obedient to them, to be ready to do good works, which benefit others, to, to guard their speech and not slander or speak evil about others, to not quarrel, but be gentle. If you look at verse 2, this is a good way of summarizing uh, everything that he's saying, to show perfect courtesy, perfect courtesy to all people. The King James Version translates that line uh, to show all meekness or to show all humility to all people. No exceptions. This is the call for Christians who have been changed by the good news of Jesus to be, to be great neighbors, to be great citizens wherever they find themselves, to in humility put others wherever they are, whoever they are, before themselves. If you're a Christian and you leave your home in the morning, uh, you're being sent by God to work, to school, to interact with others, and it's for this purpose, so that your actions can be guided by the humility that's yours in the gospel, not by pride. See, in recent history, our own, but certainly for the Cretans, they can remember religious groups, zealous religious groups, who were not like this. Uh, There were, in their day, um, zealous people, passionate for God's glory, who, instead of serving others, attempted to violently overthrow the established authorities, and they justified their actions with religious reasons, using religious language. So the Maccabean Revolt, which was one in their recent memory, was a mid-2nd century BC um, uprising, religiously fueled. Jewish fighters uh, mobilized to raid Greek towns, to terrorize Greek officials. They built an army in Israel, and they attempted to establish their own independence. Later, during Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a similar type of movement among some of his followers. They wanted to take up the sword. This is how we'll advance the kingdom. Let's, let's take up arms together. Peter, along with others, they thought the sword would actually be a really great tool for advancing God's kingdom. It'll get things going faster. Because if Jesus is Lord, if he's truly the king, if he has all the power, then why not act like all the other kings? Why not have his followers get what they want, when they want it, from those who they want it, in their own way? It's because this, of course, that Christ's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. Christ is not a king like the kings of this world, the kind of community that Christ is building is marked by humble actions, submitting ourselves to others, being obedient to lawful authorities, doing good to others, being gentle, being humble. The me-first norm of the world, and also in many religious communities, the church is not exempt from this, it is not meant to be the norm among those who the gospel has changed. Now, we, we need, I think, a little caution. I'll just throw this in here. Um, in in the first couple of verses. It's important to understand these two first verses in chapter 3 in light of all that Titus, indeed all of the scriptures, uh, say about obedience to authorities or gentleness. Um, The Westminster Confession of Faith is this ancient uh, confession of the church. It's very helpful in helping us understand 
how we are to read the Bible. It gives us some interpretive clues. So uh, in chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it may be searched and known by other places in the Scriptures that speak more clearly of it. This is the call for us to understand every part of Scripture in light of all the scriptures. So obedience to government and gentleness to others, it doesn't mean whatever you might think it means. It doesn't mean whatever a government or, or a false teacher in the church might say it means. It means what God in the scriptures says it means. So if a government commands you to obey them by disobeying God, we ought to respond with scripture. Not just like, ah, this doesn't feel right to me, but we ought to search the scriptures to see how do the scriptures describe obedience to government. Well, it's this way. It's that obedience to the government and to rulers, while important and necessary, is not absolute. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the apostles were commanded by their lawful authorities to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with perfect courtesy, with all humility, they said, no, we can't. We must obey God rather than man. Imagine if the false teachers who are present in Crete, false teachers in our own time, they, they tell Christian leaders and pastors, please stop rebuking us, stop confronting our false teachings, because it doesn't feel very gentle, what you're saying to us. It feels, in fact, quite quarrelsome. Christian leaders ought to respond with Scripture. How do the Scriptures understand gentleness and love for others? The Scriptures teach, actually, that it is not proud at all. It is not unloving to correct false teachers and troublemakers in the church. We're going to see that next week in chapter 3. It is deeply unliving, however, for the church to let uh, harm in the church go unchecked, to leave it unaddressed. You could quote from Titus chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul tells Titus to sharply rebuke false teachers. He says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. However, even in these instances when the church must in good conscience, disobey the government in order to obey God, or when they must rebuke false teachers and protect the peace and purity of the church. This must be done in an attitude of humility and not pride. They must be acts of humility and love, even for enemies, even offering prayers for their good as they persecute us. These aren't acts of proud me for its hearts, wanting what we want and not what God wants. Now listen, this, this is not easy. It's not, it wasn't easy for the Cretans. It will not be easy for you. The pull of your me-first heart will try to justify your actions. I, I, I meant to be gentle. I wasn't trying to be quarrelsome. I was just trying to be a truth-teller. It's not easy to show perfect courtesy to all people. And if you've hung around with your own heart long enough or you've been around other people long enough, you know this. This is difficult. And so for the church to be marked by humble actions, we actually need the second marker that we find in our text. We also not only have humble actions, but we must also have humble attitudes. We have to have humble attitudes. Humility can't just be this outward performative act for Christians. It must come from an internal humility. In verse 3, if you look at the text, Paul gives the church a, a large dose of humility. He lays it on thickly. He reminds them of just who they were before they encountered Christ. And it is not a pretty picture. It's not comfortable to look at. If they want to be quick to point out the faults of the rulers and neighbors around them that, that kind of bother them, Paul holds up a mirror to them. He says, look at yourselves. Look at verse 3. We ourselves, those in the church, were every bit as foolish, as disobedient, as enslaved to sin, envious, angry as the worst examples that you might find outside the church. Before God, all of the things that you've said, thought, or, or have done are exposed. 
to a bright light. The evil things that you've done that you hope no one would find out, and the good things that you did hoping that everyone would hear about them. These are exposed for what they are. God sees not only the things that you've done, but your motivations for doing them. The evil things that we did and the good things we did to serve ourselves. As we look at these, as we do often during our time of confession, as, as, as maybe you do when you're on your bed and you consider the things that you've done, they ought to humble us to our core, to remove all pride from us. We are not the good people that we like to think we are. Now, Paul doesn't say this to, to destroy the church, to shame them, to bring them to nothing. In a moment, he's about to show just how amazingly generous and gracious God is towards sinners just like us. But the effects of exposing who we are ourselves, the good people of the church, uh, what we're actually like before Christ, it ought to extremely humble our attitudes. Has your sin humbled you yet? Do you feel humbled by it? Can you read this description in verse 3 of what's true of your own heart and still think somehow that you are better than some of those people out there? I had a pastor, a wise pastor, tell me recently that uh, the greatest danger from the church isn't outside the church. The, the scriptures teach it is within the church. It is the pride lurking in every one of our hearts. Can you read verses 3 to 4 and still attempt to measure yourself up against others and find them less than you? Rightly seeing your own heart should give you a humble attitude towards yourself, but also, and importantly, humble attitudes towards others. Paul describes those who are under the power of sin using these words. They're being led astray. They're slaves. They're enslaved to their passions and to their pleasures. This ought to give you tremendous sympathy to others. Sin isn't just something that people do, though of course it is that. Sin also does something to them. It's an enslaver. It's a trickster. It promises something and can't deliver. It's a prison of their own making that they cannot escape. And maybe you've experienced sin like that in your own life. It's like you can't stop, even though you wish you could. Now, this doesn't in any way minimize the evil and the weight of responsibility of sin, but it should give us a much more humble attitude towards those who are caught in sin. This is similar to the kind of pity that's mixed with horror that we find uh, in The Lord of the Rings, when Frodo uh, spends time with Gollum, if you can remember that in the books or in the movies. Gollum has been so twisted by his own evil, by the evil of the ring for so long, that in some way it's inescapable. That, of course, doesn't absolve Gollum, but it gives Frodo some understanding. It gives him some sympathy, some insight into Gollum's wickedness. And, of course, it also did this. It helped Frodo to see that the evil in his own heart continued unchecked, that he would become just as enslaved, just as ensnared by evil as Gollum. The two of them weren't so different as they first appeared. This is captured in the famous saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. In verse 3, Paul wants the church in Crete, he wants you to see yourself rightly, to have a humble attitude towards yourself and towards others. You and the worst person that you can possibly think of in this moment, you are not so different as you might think. We ourselves were once exactly like that, Paul writes. And so this is what the good news of Jesus Christ does. It creates a humble community marked by humble actions, which come from humble attitudes towards ourselves and others. But the third mark shows that humble actions and humble attitudes, they actually must be empowered by something. This isn't something that we can just drum up on our own. They must be empowered by humble faith. Humble faith. We cannot act 
or, or, or think or feel humbly unless the good news of Jesus is believed and trusted in. Last week I made the case that Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 was the heart that pumped life-giving energy to the whole letter, but I'd be happy if you disagreed and you said it's actually Titus 3 verses 4 through 7. This too is so central to all of the book of Titus, really to all of the Bible. We can't be a humble community unless our faith is humble, unless we, we find ourselves just resting and rejoicing in what Christ has done for us. After humbling us by showing us exactly what's in our hearts, Paul humbles us further by showing us what's in God's heart. What is God's heart like? Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Friends, this is what God's heart is like. I don't know if you've ever paused to consider, what, what, is, what is God like? This is a good exercise for you to do with the Bible open. He is good. He is loving. He is kind. He is merciful to sinners. To, to the very worst. If you're a Christian, listen, you are only a Christian because God has had mercy on you. That is, the, that is the only reason. If you know you're forgiven and saved and welcomed by God, it's only because of what Christ has done for you. That is the only ground you have to stand on. If you've had any growth, any maturity in your fight against the captivity of sin, if you've seen some humble actions and some, some humble attitudes uh, c coming up, being grown in you, it's only because we believe deep in our bones the simple statement that we find at the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. He saved us. Our kids, uh, they're, they're learning in school how verbs and sentences work. It's really important. Uh, a verb describes what the subject of the sentence is or does. Everyone write that down. You got it. This is important, okay? So in that sentence at the beginning of verse 5, the verb saved is describing what the subject of the sentence, God, does. God saves. All right? Where do you and I serve uh, in the sentence? Where, where do we find ourselves? What's Paul trying to tell the church in Crete? He's trying to say, you're not the ones doing the verb. You're the objects of the verb. You're saved by God. And as one commentator writes, it's, it's important for us. It's essential for us to understand the way verb, subject, and object are working here. Because in the salvation of human beings, God is entirely subject. Men and women are entirely objects. He saved us. He saved us. Salvation comes from God alone. It has nothing to do with us, friends. Nothing to do with our past works, nothing to do with our present works. Nothing to do with our, our humble actions or our humble attitudes. It comes from God's own mercy. Christians are objects of salvation, recipients of mercy, full stop. The Christian faith, listen, it's, it's a humble faith. God's favor and love and forgiveness is not something that we can achieve or earn and deserve. To, to, to the contrary, we've achieved, earned, and deserved the act, exact opposite of salvation. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Our hearts were dominated by pride, by self-love. But when the humble, loving heart of God appeared in Christ Jesus, he saved us. He did this. If you look through verse 5, he did it this way. By the washing, such a beautiful word, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's a bit of a complicated sentence. When you look at it, there's a lot going on here. But this is what it shows us. It shows that, 
that God the Father saved us through the renewing, life-giving work of God the Spirit, which he poured out on us through God the Son. This is a beautiful Trinitarian image of salvation, that all three persons of the one true and living God are at work to bring sinners to salvation. Sometimes we have this idea that it's, it's just Jesus who, who is trying to rescue and help us. He's shielding us in some way from God the Father. But here in this text, it's very clear. All of God, all that God is, works for your good to bring you salvation. The Father plans your salvation. The Holy Spirit is the instrument of your salvation. The Son is the mediator who brings salvation. And the point is this. If you want to be washed from your sins, if you are tired of being a slave to your passions and pleasures, if you want to be renewed, to be washed, to be made new, to finally be freed from these sins that entrap you every day, that one day will deserve God's final and full and just justice, only God can save you. Only God can save you. Our faith must be humble. What do you have that you did not receive? Our faith is to be fully outward-looking, completely outward-looking, looking to God alone for salvation. This is what the good news of Jesus creates. It creates a humble community that's marked by humble actions towards others, comes out of humble attitudes, and is empowered by humble faith. And finally, this is our fourth and our final mark, this good news creates a community marked by humble hope. A humble hope. We'll end with this point. Look down at verse 7. God saved us so that... For this reason, so that being justified, that means uh, being forgiven, uh, being declared, made right before God, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a kind of forgiveness that we can offer to people that's not really forgiveness. Maybe you've engaged in this a couple of times. I don't know if anyone's apologized to you for something that they, they did or said, and you forgave them, but then you tried to make them feel like they were still in trouble. Yeah, I forgive you. A bit, right? Uh, they knew they had a short leash. You remained cold and aloof towards them. You had your eye on them. Uh, you were eager to pounce if that same thing cropped up, you know, even just in, in a small amount. This is not what God does when he forgives us. And you need to hear this. When he saves us, he doesn't simply forgive our debts. In banking terms, he doesn't just say, okay, you were in the negative with all of your sins. I'm going to forgive that debt. I'm going to bring you back to zero. I'll pay your debts. But listen, we're not going past that. You're on your own. No. This is the humble hope of Christians and that in God's sight, we are justified by his grace so that we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In salvation, God doesn't just bring your account from zero to neutral and then keep an eye on you. You better not get into debt again. He makes you an heir. He makes you into his own child all of the love, all of the riches that the Father has towards his own Son is directed to you now. In salvation, things are not just brought, even, even Stephen, you know, left uneasy, God offers you something infinite, unchanging, certain, sure, eternal life as his own dearly loved son and daughter. That's your hope. As Paul writes in Galatians, you are no longer a slave to sin and passions and pleasures and pride. You are a son. And if a son than an heir through God. How can this not humble us? What other hope should you have? We know what's in us. God knows what's in us. We daily feel the tug of our, of our me-first hearts. We want what we want. And yet Christ has come to give us life, to give us hope, to not only bring us forgiveness, but to make us co-heirs with him, God's own children. This good news creates a humble community 
which is marked by humble actions and attitudes, faith, and importantly, by the hope of eternal life, to be heirs of God. May God's people receive now this good news and be transformed by it. May you be humbled by this good news, friends. May our church be filled with people whose actions and attitudes are being transformed by it. May you, may you believe deep in your soul that God saves sinners and in faith rest and rejoice in that. And may you be filled with hope, confident, confident that the goodness and loving kindness of God has appeared to make you an heir of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to us. Through him now, would you pour out your spirit on us rich, richly so that we can be washed, so that we can be regenerated and renewed. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.